0: Genesis chapter 35 is where we're looking in the Word of God. Verses 16 through 29 is the text we're looking at. encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, there's Bibles in the room as well uh, that you can take advantage of. Let's give our attention to God's Word being read. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor and when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help. Our prayer, Father, is that you would open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Please, Father, by your Spirit, grant us grace to hear your word. Grant us grace to love your truth, to savor the word of the word who became flesh. We want to be sanctified by this word, and we want to be conformed to the image of your eternal Son. So we pray, teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth and give us now undivided hearts to fear your name. We all ask all of this through Jesus. Amen. Well, there have been a lot of uh, books that have been written and will be written to tell someone's story their own history, if you will. These books, often commissioned by the subject themselves and for their own benefit, while they are yet still alive, they're usually for the purpose of positioning that person to run for political office. And these these authors write, like I said, exclusively for the benefit of the subject. And what they do is they only include the details that present that subject in a positive light. You know what that kind of writing is called. It's not history. It's called hagiography, right? But when a writer chronicles events for the benefit of future generations, it's a given that he or she will certainly include details that may not be flattering to the subject. That's history. And we're looking at the history of the Israelites here. Now, I want you to imagine you're among these Israelites. Imagine uh, you are with them as you're uh, one of uh, a people from one of 12 named tribes. You've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. You're about to cross the Jordan River and possess the land that, that the Lord had promised to give your people as an inheritance going all the way back to Abraham. And you may be thinking, how did we get here? Well, that's the first five books of our Bible. And Genesis, of course, is the beginning of that story. And it it gives us that story from the beginning of history through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who would be the namesake of this people, Israel. Here in the text, now for the first time, all of Jacob's 12 sons are listed. This is Israel. You are descended from one of these sons. This is your history. And of course, not every detail in the lives of Jacob and his family, not every detail is recorded for us. And many of the details that are recorded are quite unflattering, as we've already seen. We've already observed faithless impatience. We've observed deception and murderous revenge within this family. Clearly, Genesis is no hagiography. Yet, through the Holy Spirit, Moses included all that mattered for the sake of the Israelites as they needed in their minds and in their hearts to understand how God set them apart as a people. And because this this was breathed out by God, this word, this story is a word that brings life to us today. In this section, I have three headings for how I want to break this passage down. I have three simple headings, and which is my title, birth, death, and debauchery. Now, there's a reason for these details in the larger story, and I want to explore this morning how these apply to our own lives as we we think about them. So, first observation from this narrative is birth. Birth. It's, It's obvious. We see this here. When our daughter was, uh, I think, 9 or 10, she, she begged us for a pet. At the time, we are not ready for the a significant investment of time and money uh, for a dog. So we got a hamster. Now, we specifically requested a male uh, from the pet store. And so that hamster found a home with us. Haley named him Wallace. And one morning, Kathy checked the cage and found that Wallace was actually Wanda. Uh, There were several tiny hamsters in that cage. Well, we didn't want a colony of hamsters. We just wanted one, so Kathy took her back to the store and got Wallace two, and they assured us this time it was a male. Now, it was surprising that Wallace had babies, but it was only because we thought he was a male. What is not surprising to us is that Wanda the hamster, got together with Wallace the hamster sometime at the pet store before we picked up that pet. So that species reproduce, it's built into how God created everything. Pollen pollen flies through the air or is carried by insects. Seeds drop from trees. Mold grows on your month-old cheese block in your fridge. A spider in your house, get this, may lay 300 eggs. Yikes. (laughs) And women have babies. It's a glorious thing. And we rejoice in every single one of them. Now at the creation, God commanded everything. Be fruitful and multiply. That's Genesis 1.22. And Wallace and Wanda were simply obeying God's command. But he also gave that command to the man and woman as a blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth later god called abraham and blessed him and said i will make of you a great nation genesis 12:2 and god reaffirmed that same promise that same covenant to jacob he said to him in 35:11 last uh, earlier in the chapter i am god almighty be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you so the lord fulfilled that promise And he would continue to fulfill it. Now as chapter 35 began, Jacob had 11 sons. Now they're traveling from Bethel. Rachel is well on in her pregnancy. And she now gives birth to her second son, Jacob's 12th. And this is important. The Bible, in the Bible, 12 seems to be consistent with a number that's related to rule and completion it's really a theme that runs through the entirety of the Scripture, right through to Revelation. And in a sense, I think we could say that Jacob's family was not complete until his 12th son was born. Now, because Rachel's dying, the text tells us, verse 18, she called his name Ben-Oni. And that means son of my sorrow. But Jacob didn't want to memorialize Rachel's death by the naming of his son. So instead, he called him, but his father, it says in the text, but his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. And again, right hand is another theme that that we see in the New Testament. It's associated with the place of honor and favor and, and even power. In fact, just note this. Following Jesus' own resurrection from the grave, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the father a place of honor and glory and power. So that Rachel, that she bore a second son, was certainly God's favor upon her. It was God's favor upon her as well as on Jacob. And I want you to recall er, from earlier in Genesis that, that after an extended season of her own barrenness, her own inability to conceive, the Lord opened her womb. And at the very naming of Joseph, it was a prayer for continued fruitfulness. Back in Genesis 30, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Birth. That's a simple observation from the text. God populated the earth through his plan for physical birth. And he set apart a unique people to be a source of blessing to all nations. And to do that, they had to reproduce. And I want to say this, God has not called for a moratorium. God still wants the earth to be populated. And just by way of application, as we observe what's going on around in the world, uh, in the world around us, there are alarmists, of course, who think the earth is overpopulated, so what they try to do is promote the idea that it is morally superior as a choice to have few or indeed no children. In fact, the the promotion of the idea of abortion, this this godless solution, the killing of the unborn yet fully human life, the idea that we must somehow limit, that we cannot bring into the world these others. And Western societies have, have bought this lie. In this nation, the birth rate per thousand is about half of what it was in 1950. So let me just say this. If you're married and able, you should have children. God's word makes that clear. In in fact, in Malachi, it says that God has given a portion of his spirit to the marriage union. And to what end? To what purpose? It says in Malachi 2.15. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God wants godly offspring. God commanded that the earth be filled through physical birth and men and women are to marry and participate in that plan. But there is an even bigger plan. God is populating his eternal kingdom through spiritual birth. It says in John 1.12, where the gospel writer there introduces Jesus, he says this, in 12 and 13 of that first chapter, to all who did receive him, as referring to the Word who became flesh, to Jesus the Son of God, to all who did receive him and believed in His name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And now, and now the church is to participate in that plan. Through the mission that Jesus gave to the church, he said this, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We have a a part as a church in populating the kingdom of God by proclaiming Christ and him crucified, by making disciples disciples of all nations and with every child of God who gives public evidence of new birth by identifying with Christ in baptism we rejoice it's a glorious thing that God is populating his eternal kingdom and it is our joy and privilege to participate in that so that's the first thing I see in the text is, is birth well the next thing that we see in this narrative as debauchery. (coughs) And it's a kind of a PG-13 section of the text, I'll have to admit. Uh, We marvel at the the genius of inventors and artists and and innovators, right? And what they do is that they find find new ways to delight us and and to make our lives simpler or simply increase our efficiencies and comforts. But when inventiveness turns sinful, when When new ways to devise evil are hatched in a depraved mind, we recoil with horror and disgust. And when evil intent, when that desire is given free reign, when sinful flesh is unrestrained and given freedom to, to flourish, we call it debauchery. And we see it on full display in Jacob's family. Like I said, this part of the text is kind of PG-13 stuff. Uh, Jacob, he's he's called Israel now in the text. This is what the Lord had named him. Apparently what happens is he has separated himself from his family. They've been dwelling where Rachel is buried. That's Ephrath. It's later called Bethlehem. That's in the parentheses in the text. And he's going to eventually make his way to Hebron, That's south where his father Isaac is dwelling. Verse 21 tells us, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So so I take it that he has been absent from his family for some time to make possible what happens in verse 22. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. I'm grateful for the euphemistic language here, but we all know what that means. So why this hideous sin? What was Reuben thinking? Was it simply a a lustful indiscretion? And and as I look at the text, I'm, I'm asking, well, what about Bilhah? There's no indication that this happened against her will. And just to add to the creep factor here, This is the mother of his brothers, Dan and Naphtali. I don't think this was merely a a lustful union. I think there's more to it. And I didn't really understand this until I studied it and I saw what people smarter than me had to say about it. But Jacob dwelling apart from his family left a leadership void. And even while Jacob was with his family, something in his character made him somewhat passive. His non-response to what Reuben did is telling of his passivity. Verse 22 merely says, and Israel heard of it. Now we might expect Israel was enraged or Israel was deeply grieved or maybe just please. Israel confronted Reuben, but no. Israel heard of it. Says nothing else. Now back to Reuben. I I think as firstborn, Reuben saw an opportunity. Taking Bilhah was an attempt to gain ascendancy in the family and then secure his position as leader. You see, in ancient times, to take the wife of a master was effectively to supplant his authority. Let me give you some biblical examples. For example, when David, who would become king in Israel, was on the run from King Saul. So David knew he would be anointed king. King Saul knew probably that David would replace him. David was on the run. At that time, we're told that, that David took abigail the widow of nabal to be his wife and what that did was that gained david the loyalty of nabal's entire enterprise but in that same section this is 1 samuel 25 43 in that same section it also says also david had taken ahinoam of jezreel again if you want to look this up for samuel 25 43 ahinoam that's only the second time that name appears in scripture the only other Ahinoam in Scripture was the wife of King Saul, 1 Samuel 14, 50. That's Jonathan's mother. Now, it just seems like a footnote here, but perhaps, and, and I and acknowledge I'm speculating, perhaps Saul had abandoned her because of Jonathan's loyalty to David. Again, it's just my speculation. And later in the text, in, in, in in at least the description of Saul's life. She is no longer mentioned as a wife of Saul. Now, it's not conclusive that this is the same Ahinoam, but listen, after David was established as king and then David himself committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then ended up killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, one of his own generals, Nathan the prophet came to confront David about his sin. Part of the message to David in that rebuke was a message from the Lord that said this. The Lord said this to David. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. The rebuke is, look, I, I've given you so much, including your master's wives, Saul, So when David fled his house and Jerusalem, later on in the uprising of his own son Absalom, trying to usurp his own father as king, King David left behind some of his concubines to keep the house. Absalom in that occasion was counseled to secure his power when his father David was on the run. This is the counsel he received. Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Sorted, sordid tale. Now, in David's case, I, I take it that he rescued both Abigail and Ahinoam And that also served to strengthen his power as king. But Absalom and Reuben in our text today, theirs was a relationship clearly forbidden by God. And we see that in Leviticus 18.7. It makes that clear. That lust acted out, whether for fleshly gratification or for power, which I take it was Reuben's desire, and perhaps even Bilhaz, as she sought with him to gain that ascendancy in the family now that Rachel had died. That's a sinful shortcut. Giving free reign to these lusts instill deeper levels of debauchery. No, what, what... what a man or woman needs, what is very reflective, indeed reflective of the indwelling spirit of God, self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Without self-control, you are defenseless against the tax of the devil. He will find his way in if you lack self-control. Proverbs 25, 28 says this. A man without self-control, here's the imagery, think about this. It's like a city broken into and left without walls. If you don't have self-control, you're defenseless. Now, Reuben's sin is downright loathsome to us, as it should be. But I want to say, we shouldn't be too quick to judge. Apart from faith in Christ, apart from his atoning work in dying on the cross for us, doing that to free us from the power of sin, there is is no telling what depths of depravity and debauchery we might find ourselves in. Do not be too quick to judge. But, and I trust this is true for you today, because we're in Christ, we now have power because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and we don't have to sin. We don't have to be without self control. Paul says this to Timothy For God gave us a spirit not of fear, you probably know this, but of power and love. And added to this, self control. Self control. Reuben, in his lust for power, lacked self control. He thought gaining ascendancy in the family was, or that the way to gain that was through Bilha. A loathsome sin because of his lust for power. Well, that leads me to the third heading in our, as we unpacked this this morning, it's death. Death. As I shared last week, Kathy and I were back in Canada for a memorial service for our nephew, Connor. He was only 31, tragically died too young. In his tribute, though, Kathy's younger brother, uh, he spoke about how death is a thief. And that's true. And, and so that got me thinking it, how death Steals the future and opportunity. It steals time, comfort, and joy with those we love. And I know, I know some here have recently been robbed. Robbed of those we love. Others experiencing that void still even though the years have passed. I often say this at funerals. We expect death to come. That's not a surprise to us but we just never find there's a convenient time for it. It isn't convenient. Yes, it will come, but now, not now. Now, in our passage, what should have been a time of rejoicing, the birth of Benjamin, also became an, age, uh, an occasion of, of mourning. Now, now, the text doesn't tell us that there is any mourning, but I think it's safe to assume that there was, because there was memorializing as Jacob set up a pillar. Rachel was the loved wife. His other wives, concubines, his other wife, Leah, Jacob was tricked into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. He didn't didn't want her. And those concubines were given by his wives to produce yet more offspring, more sons. The text matter-of-factly states this. So Rachel died. And was, she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day. Now if we go to the end of the scripture that we read together, this ends with Jacob returning to his father Isaac who is in Hebron. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years and Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Death. Death stole Jacob's favored wife in an untimely way. And although Isaac lived 180 years, and it's certainly a long time by any estimation, his life came to an end. Just like Abraham before him, just like Abraham's father, Terah, and his father's father all the way back to Adam, death is part of every story. And as true history, the Bible constantly reminds us that you cannot cheat death. And I want to say this, it's not wrong to hate death. It is truly a thief. But here's the thing. It's a thief that we've all invited in. We are responsible for the thief of death, just like everyone since the beginning of time. I'll go back to the beginning of the story. In God's gracious provision the Lord provided for our first parents, he gave them everything Everything that they needed, everything in a beautiful garden that would be good for them to enjoy, nothing that they would, could desire that would be for their good was denied to them. And in the middle of it, a tree of life. And the Lord graciously provided those boundaries for their protection. We read in Genesis 2:17 Of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. And here's the boundary. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die a simple boundary obey and live disobey and die simple boundary so many wonderful things that God had given but Adam and Eve rejected that warning and took the forbidden fruit anyway so now death is an unavoidable human expectation as the Apostle Paul describes the effect on humanity in 5.12. Listen to how Adam's sin has affected all of us. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Now, in case you want to sit here and judge Adam for his sin, thinking you would do better, know this. Every single day, there's something in you that is sinful. You are no better, and you would be no better. Every time we sin, every... Every sin of, of a lie, every, every expression or thought of lust, every time we're lazy, every time we're quick to anger, every time we are filled with pride, every time we are selfish, and you could fill in the blank with the myriad of other things that we do that are sinful. Every time we sin, it is a reminder that we are physically dying. And every death that we observe or anticipate is a reminder that sin is the reason. Now lamenting about this struggle against sin the apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7 about a, a universal principle that we all know sin wages war in our bodies and here's his lament with hope wretched man that I am wretched man That I am. How many times in my life, when observing and recounting my own failures, should I have said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul wouldn't ask the question if there wasn't an answer, a good answer. And Here's the answer in 24 of Romans chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the way that Jesus rescues us from death is that he died for us. And so if you've truly put your faith in him, if you have truly believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived a sinless life, He lived that life that you could not live, that he has the right and authority to rule over you, that his death was for you. If you've truly trusted in him, then his death on the cross takes away all the eternal consequence of your sin. Yeah, you'll physically die. We all will but you can be made alive spiritually. You can be raised from your spiritual deadness to enjoy the good gifts that God has for you in his eternal kingdom. Hear what it says in Colossians 12, uh, chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's glorious. We're physically dying. But if you've trusted in Christ today, You have been made spiritually alive. So the physical dying, that's that's a consequence of our sin. But the most important question is this. Are you spiritually alive? Do you have, right now, where you sit, where you're listening at home, do you have the certain hope of your own resurrection in Jesus Christ? I pray that you do. Now, the history of Israel is sometimes a sordid tale. But it's a true story, not unlike our own in many ways. They find their way to the land of promise, not because they were worthy, we know that, but because God was gracious to bring them despite their failings. And we see those failings on display in our text. When the story of your life is written, it will begin with birth and it will end with death. And there will be a record of sin and yes, even debauchery in between. And the only thing that will ensure that you find your way to the promised land, to the eternal kingdom of God, is if, is if you have trusted in the promise of God revealed in Jesus Christ to wipe out the entire record of that sin and then give you a glorious inheritance in Christ Jesus himself my prayer for all of us is that is is that that is where your confidence is in today as as we all sit here we've as much as we were born and will die we have all failed god in the interim But if you have trusted in Christ if you've put your own faith in Him for what He accomplished at the cross indeed He will free you from the horrific power of that sin in the present and He will take you to your eternal home. If your faith is in Christ today my prayer is that your heart would overflow with gratitude for the salvation that he has given you. And if you haven't trusted Christ yet, my prayer is that you would do that right now. Jesus said, referring to the evil one and all that he represents, including death, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I came. That they may have life and have it abundantly let's pray god you've been so so very gracious to us to grant us life in your son lord would you strengthen us to to live in light of that reality to consistently and constantly turn away from the temptations to sin, to consistently and constantly turn again to Christ. And when we stumble and fall, to, to repent of our sin before you, knowing that that sin was fully covered at the cross, God, we want to be those people. So God, strengthen us to bring you glory in all that we do. And may we collectively together as this church and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.